Uh, it has been confirmed that there are two cases now in England. This is a statement from uh, Professor Chris Whitty, who's the chief medical. The death is the first in Britain where there are now 116 confirmed cases. Of those who've contracted the virus, 10,612 have tragically died. The Kingdom is the first European state to record more than 100,000 deaths linked to the pandemic. It's been confirmed tonight that more than 150,000 people have now died in the UK after contracting COVID. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. And this country is not alone. All over the world, we're seeing the devastating impact of this invisible... It's been over two years since COVID-19 was declared a public health emergency by the World Health Organization. Since then, there have been over 500 million cases and over 6 million deaths worldwide. But we have also developed vaccines and now over half the world's population has had two doses. There does seem for the first time to be a light at the end of the tunnel. In England, we will remove all remaining domestic restrictions in law. Are we ready to live with COVID here in the UK? I think we are getting readier to live with COVID. We are going to have to live with this virus. We can find a way to live with this virus. Together with the treatments and scientific understanding of the virus that we've built up, we now have sufficient levels of immunity to complete the transition from protecting people with government interventions to relying on vaccines and treatments as our first line of defence. We're not at the end of this pandemic, and it would be wrong to say, as many media organisations are labelling this period, that we have completely entered a post-Covid era. And even when it comes to an end, we're all going to be living with the consequences of the pandemic for decades to come. Whilst older people are generally at a greater risk of serious health consequences from the virus, the pandemic has had a profound impact on the lives of the young. There are 100,000 ghost children, they're called, who disappeared from the education system and haven't gone back. And I'm in third year now and I found myself behind and anxious about what career opportunities are there for me because I feel like I'm just stuck behind. This point in our lives is such a crucial time for us to develop our personalities and figure out ourselves and it's just been halted. We've really let down our very youngest members of society during this pandemic. But the people who will be living with the consequences of the pandemic for the longest period, it's going to be the young people. I'm Elisa Anwar and in our season two finale, I'm going to be looking at how we can best help the young as we slowly transition out of a global pandemic. The COVID-19 era has increased the intergenerational divide within the UK. So now, more than ever, we have an opportunity to shape the post-COVID world. But what should this look like? What if the post-COVID world benefited the young? What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. Young people more than ever have been sidelined as our nation haphazardly navigated their way through the pandemic. That's not to say that intergenerational inequality didn't exist before the pandemic, but COVID-19 has definitely increased divisions. 
So let's talk to some young people to hear their experiences and what they'd like to see done in a post-pandemic world. I'm joined by Evie, Hannah, Phoebe and Chris to find out more. COVID-19 has impacted everybody's lives in so many different ways, but could I ask maybe how it's unfairly impacted specifically young people in a way that maybe you feel like it's not targeted the elder generation as much? So maybe some examples from your experience. Uh, Evie, do you want to go first? Yeah, um, so I think the main thing is a sense of isolation that young people have felt more than many others. So so many young, especially grads and students live in and with like a couple of roommates who they may or may not know that well. They're away from family, they're away from loved ones. And so in the pandemic, they were really, really isolated. Um, and particularly then, so for young people, making friends and colleagues at work is really important and not having that opportunity. You'll literally start with three random people in your flat is really, really difficult. COVID has impacted young people so much. I started university during the pandemic and my lectures were just glorified podcasts. I went into my university lecture hall for the first time a year into my degree. I didn't see anybody for the first year of my course. And I finished my school in 2020. I finished sixth form and I didn't get any kind of closure from that. We didn't have any exams. We were just kind of thrown into the void for six months. There was no way to work. There was no way to do any of the things that I'd been used to as a young person. So it was just, nah, it was just nothingness. We were just kind of stuck in this void where we'd kind of been forgotten about and we'd kind of been like left behind. As well as that, I think one of the other things that was never really considered was like young people dating. So there was like, what those rules are, it's like, oh, you can have one person like you can have one person in your bubble but like if you're living with three other random people you can't all have a partner that's allowed in so that like, I started dating in the pandemic and I spent like four or five months just going on walks and like that like you can only go around Hampstead Heath so many times it's actually quite depressing and like that's just a big part of your life that young people missed out on and are just like completely disregarded no, I think that thing about dating is really interesting because uh, so many people, in, in young people, that's when they start trying to find partners. And it almost feels as though for two years, it's been an impossible task. What about yeah. you, Hannah? I mean, I, I have friends who were living at university at the time, for example, who might not have gone along with their flatmates, but they were unable to go home. They were unable to socialise with anyone else. They were just stuck in this tiny little room and could only see... Um, people that they truly connected to online or going on walks around Hampstead Heath Um, and I think that has had an immense impact not only on the social relations that you're able to create and maintain but also just sense of self and what kind of experiences you've had. This point in our lives is such a crucial time for us to develop our personalities and figure out ourselves and it's just been halted. Every time I would leave my first year flat, we were given death glares by the security. We were questioned by security. And that really takes a toll on you after a while, having like a completely ghost town campus, being treated like you're the enemy and paying nine grand for the privilege. It really, really takes a toll on you. And especially at Lancaster, we were charged 19, uh, £17.95 a day for meals for isolating students on campus. If you had COVID, you had to pay £17.95 a day to have food delivered to you. We didn't have any friends outside of our flat because we had no societies, we had no classes. So we couldn't get anyone to deliver things to us and we had to pay almost £18 a day to get food. 
it really, really felt like we were the enemy during COVID. Well, it's interesting because you said that you entered uni in 2020. So you left school. I left uni in 2020. So it's sort of the same thing. You never got that closure at the end of such a big part of your life. Like you didn't get presumably school proms or balls or leavers events. You, you didn't have any of that, right? No, and it was just so it just sounds so pathetic like when everything is happening in covid when everyone is struggling so much complaining about oh you didn't get your prom or you didn't get x y and z it sounds so pathetic but when it's added up after two years of this or two years of being forgotten about two years of being completely ignored not being able to have the developmental opportunities that other young people have had not being able to go into school and understand like be able to like have that kind of like socio-emotional like development stage like especially young kids is what I found I do a lot of work with children and young people going into schools and you can see it quite like it's very stark the kids that I would work with before the pandemic were very bubbly they were um, they were they had loads of emotions they were like really eager to share and the kids that I work with now sometimes are like that but most of the time they're very reserved. They, you can very much tell that they've spent the last two years at home, particularly when it's like key stage one, like really young children who have just come into school, you can tell. And it's really, really shocking. I, I think the confidence point and like the social skills point is really good. So going into the world of work, so many young people have like done university online. They've not really socialized beyond school. They spent two years like stuck at home. And suddenly you're in this world of work where you're being held accountable, you're being told to make relationships and interact with all these like big and important people in a way you never had before. And you've got two or three years deficit compared to most people, you know, in previous generations of doing that because you've not been to university, whereas, which is a place where you really hone those skills. So I think like there's a developmental point as well about how young people have been affected and like long-term, how that will shape their experiences and like their knowledge and understanding of the world going forwards. And what about Chris? How's your experience been with it all? I started uni in 2019. I got one proper um, semester and then the pandemic hit and I felt like I haven't been in uni since, although the uni has been running. And I'm in third year now and I found myself behind and anxious about what career opportunities are there for me because I feel like I'm just stuck behind recent graduates like had to face limited employment opportunities which worsened their self-esteem and increased anxiety for graduates when applying for jobs because they feel like they're just not there but if we were to sort of look at the flip side and I don't like using the word positive when we talk about a pandemic um so excuse the use of that word but have there been any positive aspects and changes as a result of the pandemic Phoebe what do you think for me I've started my career in a pandemic. I am from a very small town in the West Midlands that no one's ever heard of. I always have to say that I'm from near Birmingham, even though I'm about an hour away from Birmingham, that kind of town. And because of that, growing up in sixth form or in school, I was never able to do any of the kind of careers development or even academic programs that I wanted to be able to because I couldn't afford the train fare and I couldn't afford like there wasn't things going on near me there was not really anything going on in Birmingham everything goes on in London or in Manchester and it was really really difficult for me to be able to get my foot in the door but 
what the pandemic did is it moved everything online, which meant that I could do things like webinars, I could let people know my name because I could attend their events and I could keep showing up and I could keep asking questions and I could keep getting to know them because everything has moved online. Um, well, for me, I've actually probably been able to save a lot of money during the pandemic. Um, I was furloughed for most of it. Um, which meant that even though I didn't have very high income, I had some form of income and I had um, less expenses. Like, I, because obviously we wouldn't go out very much, wouldn't travel. Um, I think the most exciting point in my week was when I did my Aldi shop um, at some points in the pandemic, um, which meant that I actually was able to save up a little bit of a buffer now that I probably wouldn't have been able to have otherwise. So I guess that's a positive in a way. I literally think the only reason I'll ever be able to afford a house is from the money I've saved during the pandemic from not leaving my house. <laughs> like just a practical realities. I also think kind of the other main benefit has been accessibility, especially for disabled people working from home, online learning. Like uh, I was student union president in, in a past life. And one of the big things was we wanted online lectures and access to those. And it was just completely like, no, everyone's like, oh, it's, it's not doable. Lecturers won't go for it. We don't need that. It doesn't work. And the pandemic shown it does work and we can do it. And my main thing is whether that stays for the long term. So we've obviously talked about the negative aspects. We've talked about the few positive things. Looking ahead, what would you like the government to prioritise? And what would you like them to change? My main thing is like young people in the economic recovery, because ultimately we're going to be paying the financial cost for COVID for genuinely generations to come. And we're already at a point where we had, you know, during the pandemic, young people were disproportionately furloughed, they disproportionately lost their jobs. There's a huge number of young grads coming into it not very positive looking um, employment market, um, except in jobs that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise have had to. And that practical reality, but also now we're seeing the rise in national insurance contribution, which will disproportionately hit young people. We're seeing changes to student debt, which will also disproportionately hit young people. Like people, students graduating now with tens and tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt, not really realizing how high that would be now everything has changed. Young people will be paying the cost for the pandemic, for gen like the next 40, 50 years of their life. And actually a big part of that is young people don't really have a voice on the global stage, on the international stage, even in the UK. And you see it disproportionately, policies are designed to benefit older generations. And actually we need to refocus and ensure that young people are at the heart of decision-making and therefore that their views are being represented, particularly kind of in the economic recovery. Otherwise we're genuinely gonna see a lot of young people in poverty and that's quite devastating. We need to make sure that every young person that we're engaging is not just having been engaged in a couple of like consultations from the government, how it generally works is they will engage you but they'll engage you if they know your name already which is like fine and I understand that from a logistics point of view but what it also means is that the only people that they end up engaging are the people that already live and breathe the topic that they're talking about which is so useful but also when you're talking about the pandemic you want to engage every single type of young person you want the diversity of the people you're consulting to reflect the diversity of the country you're trying to recover and especially the economy that you're trying to recover I think the second thing for me on that point is that having been at school during the pandemic 
schools responses were really really varied and it really depended on socioeconomic standing it really depended on where they were in the country it depended on the funding that was allocated towards them and it varied in within a school by their educational response by their welfare response by their safeguarding response so i would want the government to evaluate schools responses to the COVID-19 crisis and to publish those findings to disseminate them properly and to make sure they're accessible those findings are accessible to young people that are like it's put forward in media that's accessible to like what young people will be able to digest and I would want them to be able to make a particular focus in that on the availability and the accessibility of mental health and well-being services for young people particularly with a focus on those that were available through schools and those that continue to be available for through schools because that was really really lacking in the pandemic and it still is and I'd extend all of that what you said about schools and key stage one and two and three to, to universities as well because we've talked to a whole host of young people especially with regards to mental health um as young students and the services as a result of the pandemic just sort of went to one phone call or I, th- I think one student said that they were only allowed six calls with their student counsellor over the course of their entire three years or something and those responses vary from uni to uni as well so we needed some sort of evaluation higher education as well um chris what about you so for me, I would like to stress on like more career opportunities for young people, especially graduates. Like graduate jobs have insane amounts of competition, and this is because they're just not enough. There are so many graduate jobs that are described as being entry level, but they're not really entry level because they require insane amounts of experiences that we just do not have. There should, I think that like the government should introduce a placement scheme and education facilities for students that have not been able to get experience during the pandemic or for students just in general because it's just impossible I found myself in third year with no experience whatsoever and if I look at my competitor who has had three two years of experience and a publication or whatever I just cannot compete which makes it hard for me to apply for a job in future I think especially with the whole grad thing that you were saying you know because of the pandemic things did close schemes did close as well and you suddenly had a small amount of places normally and then you've now got two or three cohorts three years worth of grads applying for the same amount of places it seems impossible yes it's definitely impossible and I love graduates who are being rejected from the job and now feeling even anxious to apply because they're going to get rejected because you feel like that it's just equate into their skills and capabilities but the reality is just there's just not enough graduate jobs and they're not being realistic with the level of like work that they require I mean it's really entry level if you require five years that's not entry level that's mid-senior level or something so they're gonna definitely be put off from that we have a, lo- a large number of graduates that have masters and all that and find themselves having to work in lower paying jobs because there's nothing else that would take them on and it's just unfair. I saw um, an entry-level job the other day that was three years worth of experience and I was like (laughs) wow (laughs) that's not entry-level at all and and, and the salary reflects that as well so it's an entry-level salary too and it's three years worth of experience so. Yeah no I, I can't do anything else other than wholeheartedly agree I think that there needs to be mechanisms in place to ensure that whatever is is whatever government policies or proposals are made now they need to consider young people they need to consider how um 
what they're doing and saying will impact the future and it that you know that has to do with all areas of policy as well it has to do with environment it has to do with pensions and just everything because the pandemic has obviously affected us all but the people who will be living with the consequences of the pandemic for the longest period it's going to be the young people and therefore you have to always 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 consider their perspective first and foremost um so a lot of media organizations starting to use the phrase post-covid era do you think we are entering a post-covid time where do you think you know in our current situation we are in this pandemic timeline do you even think a post-covid world is possible yes physically we are because the last restriction written into law was abandoned like and on Monday however mentally COVID is going to stay in a lot of people mental um, space for a longer time for a longer space so physically we are entering a post-pandemic era but mentally COVID has not ended. I, I definitely feel like we have I feel like um, a lot of people around me have a different kind of optimism about them they're kind of starting to plan um, for the long term, the uh, booking holidays and, you know, like assessing career goals. And I think that mentality just didn't exist um, a year, even a few months ago or a year ago, um, where people were very reluctant to consider the future because it was just so uncertain. And I think that's what a post-COVID era is to me, at least. Interesting. I think it's not been the first time we perhaps diverge a little. I think we're moving towards that. And I definitely think the point about like mentally, I think a lot of us are there. I think people are absolutely exhausted the pandemic and we're like, okay, enough's enough. But I think we also like the practical reality is it's like hundreds of people dying a day in the UK still. And we, we just haven't, like it's not being record, reported in the same way the Ukraine crisis has, has overtaken that. Um, and obviously we've stopped giving out free lateral flows. And so we've kind of been told that it's over. But uh, I know so many people that have had COVID in the last few months, including myself, like it, it's still everywhere. And so we've kind of, we're learning to live with it, but I don't think we're necessarily out of it. And I would also say perhaps the other side of this is that like things are, and this is the kind of social point, things are returning to normal. We're traveling, which is so exciting. I can't wait for some holiday. But then I'm also like things are returning to normal that perhaps shouldn't. So things like, you know, working from home was particularly difficult for young people. But having that flexibility is so good and so important. And actually, we're already seeing a huge pressure to return back to work. And things that I think we benefited from during the pandemic, even like the community spirit that you kind of you got from all the street kind of getting together, um, the clap for NHS or whatever, um, that community spirit we were also kind of losing. So I think there are parts of the pandemic that we could have kept that we aren't going to keep. And then also we are still sort of still living through it, which is a bit like that's the practical reality to me, I think. I think that's an excellent point. And maybe I'd want to rephrase it to not maybe a post-COVID era, but uh, moving on from COVID, adapting to new reality era. But obviously not back to like, it's obviously not gone. That's not what I meant. I think, I think Hannah, you did make a really good point there that there is a shift in mentality um and whilst you know Evie says that the figures are still really high which they are and we're not reporting on it because that's unfortunately the way the news cycle works um 
I do feel like for the first time, there's a little bit of optimism. Whereas before we'd be stuck in the cycle of being free, lockdown, being free, lockdown. And I feel like for the first time, there isn't that sense that we're about to go into another lockdown. Whether you agree with that or not is a different thing, but there is definitely a little shift in mentality. Yeah, and I think the whole planning for the future thing is like exactly it. Like for the first time, I'm thinking beyond genuinely like next week, what am I going to get for my shop from Tesco's? And thinking about like summer and the future and jobs and careers and moving house and all of that sort of thing that you should be thinking about in your 20s. Finally, like that is something that feels real, which is really nice. Maybe the presence of hope means that we're entering a post-pandemic world. Or maybe the fact that COVID case figures remain high is an indication that we're still very much in the heart of this pandemic. Regardless, we're all united in the view that Gen Z and young millennials have truly been hit hard by UK policymaking during the pandemic. But how bad is the current situation? I'm joined by IF's co-founders, Liz Emerson and Angus Hanton, to talk us through the stats and tell me what they think should be done. I think a lot of the time we look at COVID as being not not the sole cause of intergenerational um, inequality, but a cause. And things were very, very unfair years and years before COVID. And and if do have a fantastic report out looking at the last 10 years and analysing, I think it was 10 policy areas and looking at their trajectory over the last decade leading up to COVID. And effectively, everything's got worse over the last decade and COVID's hit and it's got even worse. Well, that's right. I mean, things were getting bad. Um, but COVID made them really bad for young people in terms of the, the uncertainty about work. A lot of people have forgotten or don't want to remember just how badly younger generations were treated. So let's go back to the beginning of the pandemic, where 16 to 25 year olds were the hardest hit. They literally lost their jobs in the first lockdown because they're more likely to be employed in those sectors of the economy that were affected by the first lockdown. Um, there yeah, are other problems too, won't there? Those who are going to university or they didn't get a very good university experience. They effectively got online teaching from home. So the social experience of university, the meeting of tutors, the, the discussion of ideas, and yet they were still paying the full whack, £9,000 plus per year um, with high interest rates on, on that student debt. So, so that they lost out. And the, I think the worst thing about it for, for students uh, was that there was always this idea that, don't worry, next term you'll be going back. That kept getting deferred. So that whereas they thought, well, this will be a bad first term because I won't get the experience of it. In fact, many of them ended their three years of year with only having had one, two, three, maybe four terms uh, of, of real life teaching. And even that, of course, was distorted with limitations on what they could do and how they could travel. You're absolutely right, Angus. And do remember how Manchester, was it Manchester University students were literally locked in their dorms, um, unable to come out during during one of the lockdowns? Yes, but I suppose the pattern was during COVID that young people were making extraordinary sacrifices, not in order to help them with their health and not with everyone's health, but particularly to help the older generations. And that's why I think many young people think it seems so unreasonable that they suffered financially as well as socially, um, that they made the sacrifices, but on behalf of another generation. 
And on top of that, all of those things have such a detrimental impact on young people's mental health. Well, on well-being, 16 to 29 year olds had the highest levels of anxiety in 2020, 2021, with the elder, whilst our eldest age groups, our oldest members of society, actually having lower levels of anxiety than any other age group. And, and on a similar level with loneliness, younger people actually felt more lonely than older age groups during the pandemic, which is not something that you normally hear. Often loneliness is identified with older people, but increasingly um, sociologists and psychologists are finding it to be more prevalent amongst young people. When you talk about housing costs to young people, when you talk about housing costs to you talk with older people about housing costs. It's very interesting how they immediately make a different assumption. So you say in, with an older group, you'll say, oh, housing costs are very high. And they'll immediately think you're talking about house prices. If you say that with a younger group, they'll immediately realise that you're talking about rents, if you are. Um, so this is just a way of illustrating that these two di different generations revert to their own experience of where, where the high house, high house prices are. But this is and, and this is where it really gets interesting, because whilst younger people were trapped in in small houses and flats, the, it was the older generation who actually went on a housing spending spree. They actually bought up more space, both inside and out. But what that did was it turbocharged an already overheated housing market. Um, and in fact, the number of houses sold in, in towns around London, such as Oxford and Maidenhead and Windsor, I think it is, those house prices in, or the house sales increased by over 20%. And I think in Sevenoaks, house sales increased by 62%. Um, I think that a generation which is even more forgotten than Gen Z is actually Generation Alpha. And I think we've forgotten about them in our podcast episodes and they're forgotten about in government policy as well. Now, for our listeners, Generation Alpha are children, babies, <laughs> who are in the generational cohort that are younger than Gen Z. Now, most of these children, they won't remember a time before lockdowns. They won't remember a time before masks, social distancing, this scary virus. They, their whole existence is in a world which is you know, completely different to the one that we knew prior to COVID. They're not aware of that. And I think that there has been a significant developmental impact on these young children. And young school-aged children as well have lost a lot of learning time, regardless of the hard work of parents, regardless of the hard work of teachers who've done a, a fantastic job over the last two years. But I do think that this is a generation that needs to be addressed specifically in a post-pandemic world. Absolutely. They're, um... It, it, it's not just that children are the future, the children are the present and um, the, their needs in terms of, of schooling and space and play um, have been rather put to the back of any queue that's been um, by, by government in, in, in terms of policy. And yeah, they need to be given, given much more attention. And just, just to add to that, Angus, I mean, if you think about the midwifery crisis that the nation faced before COVID-19, it seems to me astonishing that um, 20 health trusts have now banned um, home deliveries of babies because they just haven't got enough midwives during the COVID-19 COVID pandemic, that there are 
100,000 ghost children, they're called, who disappeared from the education system and haven't gone back. I think it was Amanda, um, Amanda Spielman, uh, Ofsted's chief inspector of schools, uh, who said that she's got real concerns about the increasing number of younger children who've been left unable to even understand facial expressions um, because they've had fewer opportunities to develop their social and emotional skills during the pandemic. We've really let down our very youngest members of society during this pandemic. In this case and in general, it seems to us that government policy should be measured much more by age. Uh, the, impact of, the impact of policy should be measured by age and any new policy, there should be a, a, a sort of intergenerational fairness assessment done. We, we have a real problem in this country with, with silo thinking. Uh, and what I mean by that is individual government departments have for the last decade gone, oh, young people can take a hit here. Oh, young people can take a hit on housing. Oh, young people can take a hit on student debt. It's really looking at bringing, is understanding better and perhaps doing these intergenerational impact assessments that we've been calling for for so long um, in order to, 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 to demonstrate how, how much how much more younger people are being overburdened by the cost of day-to-day -day government spending and now the 500 billion pounds of COVID-19 spending. I suppose one of the things that is symptomatic of the way the government has approached these issues is when it's needed to finance something that's specifically for old people like social care, it's found a way of getting younger people to finance it, for example, in this case, with an increase in national insurance. But that's not a one-off. This is a pattern of behaviour um, that the government need money for the oldies or for society in general, and they look to the, to the, to the younger people. And I think that's a particular problem um, when you start thinking about Generation Alpha. They, at the moment, are not politically active, um, and yet they are having checks written on their checkbooks if I can use a, date, a dated way of thinking about transferring money, but they're having commitments made on their behalf. They're, they're, they're unwittingly, they're promising to underwrite all sorts of government commitments. I think something that would be quite nice to discuss is the idea of a post-COVID era. Now, a lot of media outlets are starting to use this term. Do you think we're entering a post-COVID time? I think humans are very good at forgetting what they've been through quite quickly. If you look at how, how civilizations sort of bounce back after massive events, like, you know, how the economies bounce back after the Second World War. But there are structural changes, I think, that, that are going to take place in a post-COVID world, whatever that is. Um, I think one, of, one thing that's going to stick with us is a kind of hybrid working for those lucky enough to have a job that allows them to do it. The thing is, though, that I don't think everyone thinks Absolutely, working yeah. from home is a good thing. I personally enjoy it, but not everybody does. So could you maybe see the flip side of that? Absolutely. I mean, I spend my life shouting at my friends um, who are in positions of power within organisations and berating them when they come out of their garden offices or out of their living rooms going, you've got to mentor the next generation. They need to come to the office. I say to my kids, go to the office whenever possible, 
put your face in front of senior leaders because of this thing called unconscious bias. And don't forget, we're going through an energy crisis. There are a lot of younger people who are basically subsidizing their employers' energy costs. And I'm not sure how long that will continue for. Yeah, I suppose also what it illustrates is that different young people have, have different preferences. So that what employers need to do is be really flexible they can give people a choice as to whether they come in or not to take account of those those preferences and those those facilities so do you think we are entering a post-covid time in economic terms i think we absolutely are um it's a huge change to have these levels of inflation these higher interest rates um supply chain constraints and disruptions which of course are linked but it, it's not just that prices go up things become unavailable um, and different sectors uh, experience this differently. Some people are working far too hard and some people are virtually unemployed, depending on which sector they're in. So, yeah, I, I think we, the period of relative tranquility and, and steady economic growth um, in the UK and Western Europe has, is, is de- definitely under threat. Um, my fear is that in a post-COVID world, and what we're seeing already is that younger generations will continue to be the pack horses who carry the taxation burden, whilst older generations basically continue their their um, continue to get the universal benefits and their universal protections. Well, yeah, we, we are seeing it already, though, with the health and social care levy and the increase in national insurance and and student loan repayment. Every we are seeing that repayment period start to have an impact absolutely and do bear in mind that do we not so my generation do we not have a duty to ensure that subsequent generations are able to save up for their own old ages we seem to be increasingly passing the bill for our own old ages down to generations below us based on this unrealistic idea of economic growth that actuaries defined decades ago um and and that is deeply concerning. I think COVID has woken us up to public health issues and it's woken up the whole of society to how dependent we are on each other and how one person's illness can become another person's illness. But I think that COVID has also woken us up to intergenerational unfairness and people have started to how differently different generations fared. Um, and I think that that could be a good thing if people are more aware uh, of just the damage that um, governments, successive governments have done by um, treating different generations so differently. From being abandoned in their education and entering a dwindling job market to now suffering the most financially to pay back the pandemic. The new normal, a world in which we have to live with the virus, is looking increasingly intergenerationally unfair. We need to work hard to change this. If believes that any new policies should be analysed for how they impact the different generations, they're calling for an intergenerational impact assessment. This will, they say, lead to a better and fairer future. Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something that we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics and discussion in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk where IF have conducted incredible research into the topic. Or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook and even Instagram. See you after summer 
the season three. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation.